Well, good evening. My name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here, and I also want to welcome you, especially if you're new this evening. And I want you um, to imagine a time in your life uh, when you most wanted to go home. So maybe it was um, your first experience with summer camp. Um, Maybe it was your first spend the night. Could have been the first week of college. Maybe it was just a few weeks ago. Could have been when you moved in with your spouse for the first time. No, that's not actually what it is. <laughs> or if it is, you shouldn't say that. Um, I remember a trip when I was little um, to Kiowa Island, which is a really nice resort down in South Carolina. Uh, and I was with my friend, and it was great. His family was great. But that first night, um, when I tried to go to bed, I was just, like, almost sick. Um, I wanted to call my parents. I wanted my bedroom, I wanted my, um, my pillow, I wanted my, my, our kitchen with our food and my cat. I wanted my cat there. Um, I wouldn't want my cat there anymore, but uh, at that point in my life, I liked cats. And it was, um, it was the first time I really felt uh, homesick like that. Um, but I was on Kiowa Island, okay? I had uh, the, the beach there. I had... Um, it was, I had all-you-can-drink Coke. I had access to all these snacks that I normally wouldn't have. And, and in, in the case of Isaiah here, um, Israel is in exile. They are driven from their land. They are abducted by the empire. They are enslaved by the empire. And they are a thousand miles literally from their home. Um, so they're in a different situation than I was. And they're very, very homesick. And uh, this was the greatest calamity of the Old Testament. It was such a great calamity, they just simply called it the exile. And uh, a lot of uh, New Testament scholars think that this was kind of the essential problem um, in the Old Testament. It's like if you had the fall from uh, the garden with Adam and Eve, then this was kind of the second fall, when Israel was essentially kicked out of the garden, which was Jerusalem. So this was, um, this was a symbol in many ways. It was a literal event, but it was also, it happened around um, you know, 600 BC, if you're interested in history. And uh, it's a powerful symbol of just um, this kind of cosmic homesickness that I think we, we feel, that this world is not quite our home, uh, kind of uh, like we're forgotten or forsaken even, estranged. So I want to look at um, what it means to be in exile. Again, taking Israel's exile as a, as a kind of a symbol, as the New Testament does for human experience of exile. And then I want to look at this promise that God gives um, to Isaiah, or through Isaiah to Israel, that there will be a return. There will be a return. There will be a homecoming. And they're going to come back to Jerusalem. That's essentially what's going on in this passage. He's promising them when they're in exile that they're going to come back. So first of all, exile... Um, Exile is essentially what life is like for a human being outside of the Garden of Eden. And I I do believe that there was a literal Garden of Eden, and that humans were once there. And that now we're living east of Eden. Uh, We've been kicked out of that garden. And Adam and Eve essentially lost their true home because they rejected God. It was not because God didn't want them there, but they rejected God. And I, I um, I know a couple whose son became so so addicted and so violent and threatening and he would steal things from the parents. He was very deceptive. He would um, even um, 
be dangerous to his siblings and to some extent to the parents, to, to the home. And so it's, it was a heartbreaking, horrible situation. But after many, many second chances, um, this couple had to kick their child out of their house. And um, they said it was the hardest thing they've ever done, but they had to do it. It was the right thing to do. And that's essentially what God has to do with us um, in terms of the garden. And it also is what God has to do with Israel. He promises them again and again and again, you're gonna have, I'm going to have to kick you out of, of, our, of the home here if you keep doing these things. If you don't stop, if you don't stop your addiction to idols and rejecting me, I'm going to have to kick you out. And he gives them many, many, many more chances than any parent would. And finally, he has to do that. And so he, he kicks them out of the temple. He kicks them out of the, the land of Palestine. And he essentially puts them out on the streets, which is what Babylon was, which is where they were in exile. And so um, he calls them Zion in verse 14. If you notice that, um, Zion is kind of his pet name for his people. Um, it's kind of like uh, his most beloved tender name for his people. And when he kicks out Zion, she becomes so uh, angry and enraged and so estranged from God that even when he promises to bring her back, which you see in verses 10 through 13, all these wonderful promises that he's going to bring them back. uh, Look at what Zion says in verse 14. This is after several verses of magnificent promises and grace. She says, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And so here's God trying to comfort his child, and his child wants nothing to do with that comfort at all. And if you're, if you're a parent, um, you, you know about this. You may have forgotten. If you, we're all children of someone. If you, you probably forgot about these things. But um, one of my children got really hurt on Wednesday night this week, and we had said something to make them feel kind of forsaken. They kind of felt forgotten. And so um, they, they, get, they get in their bed, they roll over on their side, they kind of curl up in a ball, they become very, very silent, you know, intentionally, like way more still than normal. And um, when we try to comfort them, just kind of by putting, you know, our hand on their back or on their head, um, you know, they kind of jerk away. And if we say we love you so much, um, you know, they say, well, you don't care about me at all. You hate me, that kind of thing. Well, that's what's going on uh, here with Israel. I don't know where my child picked up that kind of behavior. It still baffles me that who would have modeled that behavior to them. But um, that's what they did, and that's what we all do. That's what we all do. That's what what Zion is doing here. God is trying to comfort them. He's kind of laying his hand out upon them to love them. And they're turning away, and they're yelling at him. And I would say that that state of self-inflicted spiritual estrangement is... What characterizes life outside of the Garden of Eden? That's who we are. And so we, 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 we walk around together, we eat together, we worship together, we, uh, we play together, we watch sports together, we laugh and shop, and we look at our phones. And, and all the while, we're, we're kind of slapping away the, the approach of God's love. Or sometimes even other people's love. But we're in that state, just uh, like Zion was, just ready to be uh, forsaken and forgotten. All of us kind of crying out inside, you know, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. I mean, we don't often acknowledge that thing that's going on way down deep, sometimes in a subconscious way. But, but according to Scripture, that's going on. That we're all kind of living all the time, no matter how many friends you feel like you have or how many likes, 
how much community is around you. That is essentially what's going on inside of each one of us. And, and so obviously, that's going to make its way into our relationships with each other. I mean, we wonder why we have a hard time with close relationships when this kind of thing is going on right at the heart of each person, this kind of dynamic of forsakenness and forgottenness. But we wonder why, why do we have such a hard time with our, uh, with our boyfriends and our girlfriends and our wives and our husbands and our sons and daughters and our fathers and mothers. It's because of this exile. It's inside of us, deep down inside of us. There's a great movie from the 80s, one of the great romantic comedies of the 80s called Pretty Woman. And it was kind of the, the, the movie that made Julia Roberts famous. And she plays a prostitute in L.A. And uh, her whole life, uh, she was belittled by her mom, who, who teased her and put her down all the time. And then Richard Gere is kind of like um, Prince Charming, the dashing millionaire, uh, who falls in love with her. And um, the thing I remember about that movie, uh, the, the one thing I really remember about that movie, is... Uh, when Julia Roberts says, you know, when people put you down enough, you start to believe what they say. She and Richard Gere are in bed together. And he says, um, well, I want to tell you, I think you're a very bright, very special woman. And then she turns to him. This is what I remember. She says, you know, why is it that the bad stuff is always easier to believe than the good stuff? You ever notice that? And that really struck me when I saw it. It sounds kind of trivial, but... Um, feels like every compliment we get, even the greatest compliment, is kind of like a little penny. If you have a scale of self-esteem, you know, you can put a penny on over here for every compliment. And then every criticism, no matter how minor it is, is like a quarter or maybe two quarters, especially on a bad day. And so it takes, you know, many, many uh, compliments, uh, even huge compliments, to balance out maybe one small, very gently given uh, criticism. Um, because I think we're so ready um, to feel estranged and forsaken and forgotten because of this exile that is within us. Um, it just creates a kind of a, a cascade of forsaken thoughts. People sometimes come and tell me, uh, I, I, I don't feel like I fit in. I feel left out. Um, I feel alone and isolated. And sometimes I'll tell them, well, you know, the good news is that every other person I talk to feels the same way as you do. And so uh, we're, we're all in this together. We're not alone in that way. That uh, this exile is, is real. And uh, that what Israel experienced was simply a symbol of, uh, of a deeper condition that humans have outside of the Garden of Eden, which was our true home. There's a great Catholic writer from New Orleans, um, Southern writer named Walker Percy. He was a doctor. He was a medical doctor. And then he turned to... Novels, And he has a great uh, nonfiction book called Lost in the Cosmos, The Last Self-Help Book. And um, he talks a lot about cosmic loneliness in that, in that book. He, um, he says this. Uh, he says, marriage and family life are ultimately disappointing. Even among defenders of traditional family values, a certain dreariness, a certain dreariness must be inferred if only from the average time of TV viewing. Social life is also disappointing. The very franticness of attempts to reestablish communities and festivals by parties and groups and clubs and touristy Mardi Gras kind of things. This is the best evidence of the loss of true community and the loneliness of self 
stranded as it is in a world from which it perceives itself as somehow estranged. Stranded even within its own body. The loneliness of self. And that, that last line, that even within our own body, you know, even when you look at yourself in the mirror sometimes, you feel like, who is that? Or is that even me? Like, what am I? Stranded within its own body. And that, I bring that up partly to say that the exile is not just with other people. It's not just with God. Uh, it's inside of ourselves. And it's, it's even with the world we live in. That even, um, even the universe, even kind of nature, doesn't feel quite right to us. Quite like home. I remember as a child uh, playing in the sand at the beach of Pauly's Island, South Carolina, in a marsh at sunset. Uh, I was fascinated by the sea life there. I loved going down there. I felt very much a part of creation. Uh, I felt like I was almost uh, one with nature, you know, in the waves there, in the sand, um, with the sun going down. Um, but, you know, somewhere along the way, I think almost all adults do this, you stop playing in the dirt. You stop playing in the sand. You stop being even, and even then I wasn't like, I wasn't exactly home in nature, but now how much more, how much more estranged from, uh, from even from nature, even from, even from the world that we live in. Uh, we, we live in uh, kind of such a sterilized, artificial kind of uh, exile. And C.S. Lewis says this about our relationship with nature. He says, we do not merely want to see beauty in nature. We want to be united with the beauty that we see. We want to pass into it. We want to receive it into ourselves. We want to to bathe in it. We want to become part of it. Uh, Lewis says, at present we are on the outside of the world, on the wrong side of the door. Again, that's that, the exile, the homesickness that we're not in yet. Uh, that's point one. That point one is that um, it starts with God, and then it affects our, our own relationship with ourselves, and then other people, and then nature. And in all these ways, it's fractured. There's alienation at every single level. God, self, people, nature. The exile. That's point one. But the good news is, point two, is that God will open up the door. And um, that the promise is already there. That the, the God is going to open up the door and nature is going to welcome us back in and the exile will end. There's an amazing passage in Romans chapter 8 verse 19 where Paul says, The creation, having been frustrated in bondage to decay, and I think of entropy there, uh, the creation frustrated in bondage to decay waits in eager expectation as in the pains of childbirth for the sons of God. Nature is waiting for the sons of God. And we also groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, getting back in the house of nature. And this is, this is point two here, the return. That even as we lash out at God and say, you have forgotten me and you have forsaken me, uh, God uh, still continues to place his hand on our head again and again and again, come back to us, love us, and say, no, I could never forget you. You are never forsaken. That's the return. The return from exile. Now in history, we know that in 540 BC, uh, there's a thing called the Cyrus, C-Y-R-U-S, the Cyrus Cylinder. 
looks like a big piece of corn that very large and made in bronze. It's in the British Museum. You can go and look at it and, it, and it tells you from King Cyrus a decree that he made that all the peoples in his realm could go back and worship the God that they worshipped originally. It was an amazing act of tolerance and liberation, 540 B.C. And uh, this decree uh, allowed the Jews to return to their homeland. 50,000 Jews left um, the, the empire, the Babylonian Persian Empire, and traveled that 1,000 miles back to Jerusalem. An amazing event. It was the first time in human history that uh, a nation that large returned entirely to its home. Um, and today, that, that event, which uh, Jews call the, uh, the Aliyah, A-L-Y-A-H, uh, the Aliyah, that, that event of the exile, that, that word means the ascent. They went back up to Jerusalem. Um, that is the basis for the modern Zionist movement that led to the creation of the modern state of Israel. That event in 540 B.C. Uh, the Bible says this. This is from Ezra chapter 1. Um, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. I think Ezra was just writing down what Cyrus told them. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. The God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem. His people are free to return and build the house of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Because the temple had been destroyed. And now, if you notice, not only are they getting out of exile... But they're also getting back into God's house. They're going back home. And so return to the house of Yahweh shows that the end game there is to go back into uh, the original house. And really the, uh, the temple, if you know much about the temple, there were a lot of, um, of kind of embellishments around the temple that made it look like a garden. And so the, the temple that God built was supposed to be a little replica like a um, kind of an architect's drawing of, of what the Garden of Eden was supposed to be. So Israel was, in going back in the temple, was supposed to be feeling like this is what the garden was like a little bit, a little bit. And so now God is welcoming back to the house of Yahweh. And if you notice in verse 10, um, God himself will come and get them and bring them. Kind of like in the prodigal son where the father, while they were still far off, saw them and came running to the prodigal son and brought him back. Uh, verse 10, he who has pity on them will lead them. And the he there is not Cyrus, that's God. And he doesn't just come and get them. Uh, he leads them home like a shepherd. Uh, like the shepherd of Psalm 23. If you know Psalm 23, it says, by springs of water he will guide them. Verse 10. A lot like that psalm, um, by streams of living water. The shepherd guides them. So he's going to come out, he's going to get them, and he's going to bring them home. To Jerusalem, And it's not just the Jews. Uh, if you notice in verse 12, it's bigger. And it's such a glorious thing that he calls this eventually like a, like a dress, like a, like a bride's dress. The nations are going to come in with the Jews, and it's so glorious and wonderful that he compares it to a dress. Look in verse 12. Behold, these shall come from afar. And those are the Jewish exiles. And behold, these from the north and from the west and from the land of Cyrene. That's in lower Egypt. So in other words, all over the world, they're going to come in back to Jerusalem. So the exile uh, was just the Jews, but the return is going to be the whole world. This is a promise that one day all the nations are going to come and be home again with God and his people. And so when the exile ends, the real exile ends, 
not just the exile of the Jews, but the bigger exile, um, there's no more nationalism. There's no more favored nation in the world. That's the point of that verse right there. They're going to come from north and west and from the south and from the east. So there's no more racism in, in the exile's ending. In the return, there's no, more, there's no more racial groups that are privileged or superior to other ones. There's, there's no more elitism. There's no more sexism. There's no more classism. Part of the exile is that uh, the strong tend to push away the weak, or the powerful tend to push down the powerless. But in the return... God's saying there's going to be no more exclusive clubs or cliques. So no more being left out of parties or not invited to things. No one's left out, especially the most damaged people. Look in verse 11. The people most damaged by the exile are going to be brought in. Uh, God says, I will make all my mountains a road and my highways shall be raised up. In other words, he's going to flatten the, the really high parts of the road. And he's going to lift up the low parts, so he's going to kind of make it smooth, like a highway that you can easily drive down. And so the idea there is it's kind of like a, a thousand-mile handicap ramp, something that's very accessible to people with special needs. So in other words, the, the, the breadth of God's welcome is enormous here. He's saying, I'm going to welcome in the people who, who are the most lame and the most unable to make that journey back themselves, the elderly, people with walkers, people in wheelchairs. All people, that's what that verse is about, bringing in all people back home to God. So the, uh, the return is kind of like a, the combination of a family reunion with uh, the Emancipation Proclamation. If you put those things together, that's what you're talking about here with the return from exile. So imagine two 85-year-old Jewish men who are wandering back from exile, and they grew up together in the same street, in Jerusalem. They played together as children. They were split up in the exile, and now they're coming back home 60 years later. Imagine them seeing each other. Um, imagine the embrace. Imagine them introducing each other to their children as they're returning home, just in this caravan that is overflowing with wine and bread and meat. It says in verse 10, they shall not hunger or thirst. Scorching wind and sun shall not strike them. So this is, <clears throat> this is the return. The return from exile. All these things coming back together. And uh, the essence of the return, just as the essence of the exile is forsakenness from God, the, ex- the essence of the return is, is being reconciled to God, is being one with God. Because that's the heart of our loneliness. It's not getting back the land. That's not the Jews' main problem was the loss of the land. The, it's not about getting even each other, as important as that is. It's all about getting back to God. And look at verse 15. And this is, this is the most famous part of this uh, passage. This image here. Um, he says, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? So God is comparing himself to a nursing mother or also to a mother carrying a child in her womb. And the answer to that rhetorical question is, is, is obviously no. No. A, a nursing mother or a mother with a child cannot forget. I can't imagine a bond actually stronger. I think that's why God is using that analogy, because 
Two souls, two human, bo- two human being souls sharing one body. I mean, that's about as close as you can imagine. The son of her womb, he says. Or imagine the, the, the mother's feelings uh, for her child who's nursing. Of course, I have no idea, but surely there's nothing more instinctual than that, nothing more visceral and kind of down in the guts kind of love than that. And, and God is saying, I am even closer to you than that. That even, th- even those women could forget their children. Even if they m- might forget, verse 15, yet I will not forget. I will not forget you. you are, I am that close to you. You are that dear to me. And so the next time you feel uh, orphaned and forgotten and forsaken by the people around you, you need to remember, verse 15, that even if these may forget, yet I will not forget. Because... Problem is, our, our default mindset is always back to exile. That's always the way our thinking returns. That uh, this evidence comes in about how people regard us, what people think about us, and we filter it out. We filter out the good. We kind of just send that in its way. It kind of goes in one ear, out the other ear, generally. And yet anything coming in that confirms the story that we've made up about ourselves we latch on to it. You know, no one uh, thinks about me. No one notices me. Uh, no one cares that I'm here. Uh, they, they think I'm terrible. Uh, they think I'm a loser. Um, the, the future is it's all dangerous. Everything's scary. I'm, I'm on the outside. I'm marginal. Um, you know, even as we look in a mirror, like I said, we, we get that sense. God is saying, no, that is all. Those are lies. Reality is, you know, uh, Daniel was praying for people with, um, with mental health problems. The mental health problems are that you're not in touch with reality. And so if you're not in touch with the reality that God is closer to you than a, than a nursing mother to her child, then you're out of touch with reality. That's a mental health problem. That we don't realize that the exile is over. You've got to ask yourself, can a woman forget her nursing child? No. And so if that's true, you're not forgotten. And if that's true, you're not forsaken. There were these commercials for, um, for Dove Soap. Uh, dove being like the bird, Dove Soap. And um, the tagline was a, the journey to comfort. And they were strangely moving to me. I know that's bizarre. But uh, they came on during the NCAA tournament. I don't watch a lot of TV, but that's what I'm watching. And so these things came on all the time. And of course, all the people in them are sports stars. Uh, Magic Johnson and Albert Pujols and uh, John Elway uh, talked about how um, he used to always turn red when he was dancing and was really embarrassed by that. You know, John Elway, the great quarterback, if you're not tracking with me. And then Doug Flutie, uh, Doug Flutie talked about how he always felt like really tiny and puny and picked on. He was like five foot 10, so he was a very short quarterback. And uh, he talked about how, um, how you know, sad he was and, and how marginalized he felt. And then um, Tom Izzo, the coach for Michigan State, he talked about how he was always so terrified and nervous of big games. And, and then something happened in their lives, and we all know what that is. And now they're comfortable in their own skin. That's kind of the way the commercial went. Um, and apparently what happened was they started using Dove soap, which I very much doubt is actually true. Uh, it's ridiculous, actually. But 
There was something about that um, idea of being comfortable in your own skin. I know it's just an expression people use, but I feel like that, you know, that's when the exile is starting to lose its power over you. I mean, you just are who you are. And uh, you're comfortable in your own skin. And I, um, when, I remember when I was in the 11th grade, and I stood up in uh, Mac Mitchell's history class um, over at the Career Center, great uh, teacher of AP European history. I had to give a, like a two-minute presentation on something from 18th century European history. And I stood up, and I literally could not open my mouth. Uh, and I just sat back down. And he just moved on to the next student. Um, so if you're a teacher, please be kind to those students like me. But I, 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 was, I completely froze up. I was terrified. It was one of the most memorable, horrifying experiences of my life. And, um, and then, you know, by the grace of God, um, later in life, I just, uh, I became a believer and I just felt like, um, you know, I didn't start using Dove soap. I just felt like God, God is so close to me and I'm so safe. Um, I'm so protected. I'm so well nurtured and taken care of by, you know, this mother, um, that um, I, I can be comfortable in my own skin. I don't have to be so afraid. I can, I can start to doubt my crazy narratives about myself. And you too, that you tell yourself about being forsaken and forgotten. I can start believing that God's promises are true. Can, I forget, can a woman forget her nursing child? No. Even if these may forget, yet I will not forget or perhaps even more astonishing, this image in verse 16, which is um, why I asked Travis to do in Christ alone. My name is graven uh, on his hands. You know, that line, I'm at, my name is graven on his hands. That comes from this verse. Your, your name is engraved like a tattoo. Ben Milner, on the hand of God. Now, God doesn't have a hand and he doesn't have tattoos, but it's an image of the, 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 just how much I am on God's thoughts all the time. How much you are on his thoughts. How deeply it, it would pain him to have that uh, you know, carved into his skin. And yet how willingly he does that to know you. you know, on the night he was betrayed, or a few nights later, um, Jesus came up to Judas. Um, no, it was Thomas. Uh, Judas betrayed him. Thomas uh, did not betray him, but doubted him. Thomas doubted his love. Doubted his resurrection. And uh, what does Jesus say to Thomas when he doubts him? Uh, he says, look. Look at, my, look at my hands. See those holes in them right there? Does that not tell you, Thomas, that I love you? That your name is graven on my hands? That I would, I would do that for you? And so, you know, if you, if you doubt that, uh, that a return is happening, and if, if you doubt the exile is over... Just think about the hands of Christ and uh, the way that he suffered for you. Usually the the master um, had his name engraved on the slave to to say like, you know, the property. Like if I were the slave, it would say Gaius or it would say like, you know, Maximus here. Tattooed somewhere on my body would be the name of my master. But here God has his servant name engraved on him to say, I am yours. I give myself to you. 
and you have me. You have me completely. And so on the night that he was betrayed, a few nights before...